Aloha, everyone. On behalf of Domino's Hawaii, we wanted to take a moment to thank our team members for working through these trying times. And we wanted to thank our community for not just supporting us, but most importantly, supporting each other amid this climate of change and continued uncertainty. It is difficult to fathom some of the recent tragedies that have occurred, but what we can do collectively is aspire to be better for one another. We don't want to disrupt this message by taking time to promote some meaningless special. All that can be found on our website or app. Instead, once again, mahalo for your strength and your character. And we look forward to our very special community here in Hawaii getting back to work and making the world a better place. And with that, let's talk sports. Jordan, let's jump right in with our warm-up since our last episode. Vince Carter, I know he's one of your faves, definitely one of my all-time hoops favorite players. Uh, He officially retired after 22 seasons in the NBA. 22! Uh, Your favorite Vince Sanity moment. I have a follow-up as well for you after you share that with me. Yeah, my my favorite uh, Vince Carter moment uh, is a personal one and and kind of a self-centered one. But when they came down, that 2000 Olympic team on their way to Sydney, right, a lot of folks in Hawaii will remember they stopped off in the islands to hold a little training camp, played some games at the Stan Sheriff Center. Uh, and I actually went as a kid. Uh, it was like a surprise. Our parents took us over, me and a couple friends, and, and we went to the, the game against the, the U.S. Select team, which was like the collegiate all-star team, basically, right? And, uh, and the, uh, the Olympic team put on a show. Vince went like 10 for 10. And I, I, I don't remember exactly, but I swear all 10 of them were highlight reel dunks. At least like six of them were. Uh, and he just put on a show uh, at the Stan Sheriff Center. And just watching that in person, it was, you know, you, you had seen some of the highlights and whatnot. And we knew, and we, we know obviously what his career went on to be after that. But man, that dude in game contest dunking, it doesn't matter. Uh, his ability to just fly through the Raptors, uh, the Raptors um, while playing for the Raptors um, <laughs> was, was incredible. Uh, so yeah, that's my favorite Vince Sanity moment it, just because I got to witness it in person. Well, you stole a little bit of my thunder and also followed up by just uh, shining a brighter light on the age discrepancy here, because I was also there uh, at those games. There were two exhibition games, one against college all-stars, one against the Canadian all-stars. I was actually a reporter for KITV at the time and I was standing on the baseline. This was in 2000, right? Right. Um, and I was standing on the baseline when on a break, Ray Allen tosses up an alley-oop to Vince Carter and he did an alley-oop windmill dunk eight feet away from me. And it was just the most electrifying thing I've ever seen in my life. And I didn't think that that kind of dunk was even possible until I saw it with my own eyes. Uh, it was just extraordinary. So that is, yeah, I know he dunked over the seven footer vice uh, in the actual Olympics. Uh, and that is probably the greatest dunk of all time. But uh, my favorite Vince Sanity moment was the one that I witnessed. Is he the greatest dunker of all time? Uh, and you can answer that either way, but who is in your all time four man dunk contest? Ooh, he, I, I, think I, I think I do have him as the greatest dunker of all time. Uh, and obviously, it's a generational bias there. As far as uh, my dunk contest, uh, you got to go with him. You got to go with Michael Jordan, right? When, if you're having a dunk contest, Michael's got to be in it. I went uh, Dominique Wilkins, also a bit of a, an ode to the past. And then uh, 
in the uh, this millennium category. I went with Nate Robinson because I feel like any good dunk contest has to have a little guy. You have to have a little guy who's just going to go out there and wow the crowd. So Nate Rob's my guy. Oh, going Nate over Spud. Interesting. Um, yeah, I got Vince Carter as the, the greatest ever. And, you know, it could be a sort of two-sided conversation because you can talk about best in-game dunkers and then maybe you're introducing Sean Kemp to the fray, but I feel like Vince Carter was both, like whether he was dunking in a contest setting or whether he was dunking in an actual game. I mean, he was doing 360s and alley windmills and that kind of stuff in actual games. So yeah, to me, he is far and away the best dunker of all time. Uh, my all-time four-man dunk contest would also include uh, Michael Jordan. Uh, and then I go with a couple of newbies, Zach Levine and Aaron Gordon. I know that Gordon hasn't won a dunk contest yet, but I feel like he's just been robbed a couple of times. But those two guys have done dunks that I've never seen before, uh, and they do so with regularity. And so I know that it might be sacrilege to not include Dominique or even Dr. J, perhaps, certainly considered it. Uh, but if I just want to see the four dudes who are going to do the most mind-blowing dunks it would be those four guys. So, uh, yeah, there it is. That's my all-time dunk contest. I wish we could see it. Vince Carter could probably still compete in one and, and actually do pretty well. All right, let's talk sports with Kanoa Leahy and Jordan Helley. Very excited today. We're going to be talking with Artie Wilson. And, you know, you may know him as the color analyst for UH Men's Basketball Telecasts on Spectrum. I have the privilege of working alongside him. He is also a real estate mogul for Artie Wilson and Associates. He hosts a radio show on point with Artie Wilson on ESPN Honolulu. Uh, but a, a lesser known fact about Artie is uh, he is the second Artie Wilson uh, to his dad, who by the same name uh, was a Negro Leagues baseball legend. And I'm not even just tossing that term around. The guy was an all-time great. We were talking as we were scheduling already for this podcast, Jordan, and you weren't really that privy to the achievements of the elder Artie Wilson, who passed away in 2010 at the age of 90. But uh, when you look up his numbers and you look up his accomplishments, I mean, it is remarkable. A multi-all-star. Uh, he hit over 400 one year in the Negro Leagues. Like, this guy was amazing. And so Artie's going to uh, share a lot of the research that he's done uh, because we are celebrating the 100th anniversary of the founding of the Negro Leagues. Here this week, and you're seeing a lot of the tipping of the cap from VIPs in our community uh, on social media. And so um, Artie's going to get into some of that and talk about what he's discovered and certainly share some of the pride that he has uh, in uh, what his dad was able to do and what he meant to the game of baseball. Yeah, I, I really wasn't, uh, which is kind of shame on me, uh, privy to Artie Wilson, the elder, and, and his career. And, and hopefully our conversation uh, with our Artie right uh, here in Hawaii will uh, spur some people to, uh, to go Google Artie Wilson and just do some reading. I, I spent hours last night uh, reading old articles and stories and, and legend, if you will, uh, because his, his, his life story is fascinating. Uh, and, and I'm with you, man. He, he really was one of the greats. Uh, like I'm talking like he probably should be in Cooperstown. Great. Um, and, uh, I think it is a shame that more people aren't aware of his story. Uh, and hopefully this can, uh, shine some light on it and, uh, lead a few more people to, uh, to learn who Artie Wilson was. Yeah. We're going to get into that with Artie in just a little bit, but let's hit up some of our game time topics. Prep football up in the air, Jordan. That was the headline for an article in the Honolulu Star Advertiser. Now, prep football is scheduled to start team practices on August 17th. The HHSAA has put out a set of guidelines for the upcoming athletic season. They referred to football specifically as a, quote, higher-risk sport. Uh, the document addresses a wide range of concerns for all sports 
on the prep docket, sanitation, mask wearing, transportation, certainly an issue, uh, and the possibility of pausing or even canceling seasons. Now, uh, the plot thickens a little bit because in recent weeks, Mid-Pacific Institute has been one of the institutions that has said that its student athletes will not this year be participating. Uh, for them, they would participate with Pac-5 for football. They will not be doing that this season. Damien and their previous head of school, they cut head football coach Eddie Klineski and other athletic staff members, sort of kept it up in the air as to whether or not they could sign them back on uh, to those positions uh, if football is in fact played. But that seems to tell a story or at least present some writing on the wall. Uh, so we may see some other more COVID safe sports taking place, bowling, air riflery, things that are performed a little bit more in isolation and safe social distancing. Uh, but how concerned are you right now about football season? Uh, pretty concerned. Uh, I, I think it is still very much a flip of the coin at best uh, that we, we play high school football, at least on the timeline that has been set forth, right? Middle of August start date. I mean, that's basically a month and a half away. Um, and, and I don't know how much better things are going to get. Like they're still figuring out uh, what school is going to look like, right? Uh, we, we saw a bit of an agreement this week uh, between the uh, State Teachers Association and the Board of Education, the Department of Education, the state uh, as to, you know, what kind of protocols are going to be in place or what kind of structure is going to look like uh, in terms of just everyday classroom instruction. And part of that is, hey, some kids might stay home one day and the other half come to school. Like what happens to the, the kids who don't come to school? Can they play sports? You know, there, there's still a lot to figure out there. And then you're, you're already seeing some schools preemptively uh, you know, nixing the football season, if you will, right? Mid-Pacific, uh, that's where Pac-5 practices. <laughs> so, you know, are they going to be down at Kapiolani Park or something if they can f find enough kids at the remaining schools uh, that make up that conglomerate? Uh, who knows what the future holds at Damien? I mean, you just look at the ILH, right? If they are uh, down those two programs for this season, I mean, that basically just leaves uh, the big four, if you will, right, with St. Louis Punahou, Kamehameha, and Iolani left, and, and that's basically half of their membership from a couple of years ago when you include the closure of St. Francis. So, yeah, I think it's, it's still very much in doubt. I, I do think we'll see sports, for sure. As you pointed out, sports like bowling, uh, air riflery, cross country. I think even volleyball probably has a decent chance of being played girls volleyball, that is, in the fall, of course, boys volleyball in the spring. Um, but I do, I do think there's a decent chance we see the vast majority, if not all, of the fall sports outside of, say, football and, and maybe competitive cheerleading, uh, which is also a fall sport, which has been classified amongst the higher risk. So, yeah, I, I think football still very, very much in doubt. I mean, you're, you're seeing, you know, collegiate teams start to, to bring back players uh, and then uh, basically have a bunch of them test positive. I mean, heck, Hawaii's first-week opponent, Arizona, just shut down uh, their facilities this week because uh, they were slowly bringing them back, I think, like 20 at a time. Uh, and uh, had some positive tests. So they, they, they kind of put a nix to that, at least for the time being. Uh, what happens when that happens at the high school level? Like, you know, when you get into camp uh, early August for these high school teams and, and all of a sudden, you know, there's a positive case or something like that. Like, I don't know. We, we haven't figured that out yet. So, yeah, I think for, for sports like football, where there's no choice but to have contact and, and uh, you know, spit flying everywhere, uh, for lack of a better term, uh, it's going to be tough. I, I really think it is. And, uh, I'm, I'm not that optimistic. And I think, again, it's probably 50-50 at best that we play full contact sports like football in the fall.
Yeah, I think you touched on it, the, the fact that you have at least a bit of a model from some other college programs that have started to gather, not necessarily as full team activities, but at least partial team activities. And what, Clemson has nearly 40 positive cases. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've seen it at Texas and Texas A&M. And I think that's the concern. Is football such a unique sport? I mean, obviously, it's in, played in such close quarters along the trenches. There's so much physical contact. Uh, but also in the week leading up to a game and the preparation where you're in film rooms and you're usually in more intimate settings in that way. And so if you have a positive case or two, say it comes from the defensive backs unit, what is the protocol there then? Do you just isolate the two positive tests and you move forward? Or do you have to then isolate and quarantine the entire defensive backs unit? I I just, I'm not sure how technically and logistically you're going to be able to negotiate and maneuver around some of that stuff just because football is so unique in that way. Uh, We just don't know enough, but I think we're starting to see some very bothersome trends here uh, that are going to uh, make playing at least the game of football uh, much more questionable and uncertain. Speaking of football, something about those Patriots and those cams, right? Uh, The franchise that brought you Spygate, right? And and perhaps the nefarious use of cams. Uh, They've made news with another cam, Cam Newton, signing a one-year deal with the New England Patriots, Jordan. Uh, How do you rate this transaction by New England? Does it put them right back in the mix for a Super Bowl title? I think it very much puts them right back in the mix of that division, for sure. Uh, I I still think that there's a massive gap between uh, them and the Chiefs, and probably even the Ravens in the AFC in terms of just quality across the board, that Patriots defense is still going to be really, really good. Uh, But I love it, right? This is such vintage New England. Like, they'll find the veteran. They'll bring him in under, you know, a lot of what people would would say is market value, and and who knows, right? Especially when you – like, the Bears traded draft capital to go get Nick Foles – the Colts spent $25 million for Phillip Rivers, who's older than old man Rivers at this point. And then there's Cam Newton, who, look, the, the injury concerns are legitimate, right? I mean, he missed most of last season. I think he played in two games. He missed about half of the 2018 season as well. So there, there are legitimate concerns. But he is rested. If, that, if everything is healthy, whether it's the foot, whether it's the shoulder, if he comes in and is healthy in an incentive-laden contract, right? For the Patriots, it's no-lose. For Cam Newton, it's an incredible opportunity to go prove that he is still that guy that signed that $100 million contract, won an MVP, took the Panthers to the Super Bowl. Uh, And if he still can, and especially if he still brings an element to the running game, and I'm not saying they need to run him nearly as much on design runs, especially on short yardage, like they did in Carolina or something like that. But Josh McDaniels, I think, has proven that he he isn't married to one system. The Patriots have run multiple systems under him even when he was coaching Tim Tebow in Denver. He found a bit of success with Tim Tebow throwing the football. Tim Tebow can't hold a candle to Cam Newton as a passer. I think that division is wide open once again. Like You're talking about the Bills, who were right there on the heels of New England last year. Uh, I'd imagine they'll be decent again, but I'd be surprised if they were as good as they were last year. You know, Are you putting your money on Sam Darnold and the Jets with Adam Gase at the helm? No. Uh, you know, the Dolphins, I think, are still a year or two away, uh, even though I really like what Brian Flores is doing. So that leaves the Patriots. I don't think this makes them a Super Bowl contender, uh, but I do like their odds in the East. It's just so vintage, New England. Basically spend the minimal amount of money on signing Cam Newton for a one-year deal. There is literally no risk here 
right? Because uh, what Jared Stidham is the other option. And so if it doesn't work out with Cam Newton or you end up going with Jared Stidham anyway, then uh, you're no worse for wear in any way, shape or form. And particularly uh, of the utmost importance for the Patriots, financially speaking. But if it does work out, and if you do get a healthy Cam Newton, you're getting a 31-year-old, 100% healthy former league MVP behind center to take over the reins, if you will, for a guy who's considered the greatest quarterback of all time. And you already heard Bill Belichick, who was maybe as enthusiastic and positive in the way he was describing Cam Newton, uh, maybe more so than he ever was at any point, talking about Tom Brady, which is like the weirdest, most ironic thing. Uh, But he was specifically mentioning the fact that he is a threat in the running game, and he is dual-faceted, and he does have versatility to his game. And so you just know that the Patriots are already drawing up ideas of how to extract and and take advantage of and exploit those kinds of skill sets that Cam Newton is specifically bringing. And it came at perfect timing because they were able to announce this uh, while then basically overshadowing yet another Cam scandal. Yeah, no, talking about cameras and filming uh, and the Patriots just, uh, they're able to, to pull a fast one on everyone yet again. All right, time now to get to our Domino's Hawaii main topping for this episode of the podcast. We're going to talk with Artie Wilson of Artie Wilson and Associates, color analyst for UH Men's Basketball on Spectrum, host of On Point with Artie Wilson on ESPN Honolulu, his dad, Artie, a Negro League's legend who played against Jackie Robinson alongside Willie Mays. You'll hear about all that stuff. Let's go ahead and play that interview with Artie right now. Hey, what's up, Artie? It's good to have you, man. Good to talk with you. And uh, this week is particularly cool timing. Maybe a lot of people don't fully understand, or at least to the degree that is is appropriate. Would you do the honors of just sort of introducing those who had not heard previously of uh, Art Wilson, just just what he was as a baseball player and, and as a dad? Well, yeah, it would be my pleasure to introduce you to Artie Wilson, because I tell people all the time, whenever you go on Google and you Google Artie Wilson, the first three pages that come up, it's my dad. It's not me. It has nothing to do with me. My dad was a superstar before the term superstar was known. Played in the old Negro Leagues back in the 1940s from 44 to 48. Had five seasons as being an all-star in 1948. He was the last player to bat 402 in organized baseball. And his, his, he, the first couple of years he was in the league, he was second runner up at, at average. I think 353, 378, 373. And then in 1948, he went over 400 at 402. Uh, lifetime 330 or so hitter for 20 some years. My dad was, a, was an absolute uh, crazy man with the bat. Never could hit a home run, could slap shots. Hit, hit the ball to the left side, batted left-handed, was a tremendous baseball player. Uh, and as you know, Kanoa, and we talked about this, uh, they are having this tipping of the cap to uh, the Negro League, which is celebrating 100 years because in 1920, the Negro League Baseball uh, League was started. Uh, and, and they're celebrating 100 years, and there's a tipping of the cap and I like, I like that because uh, my dad talked to me when I was young about when he first faced Satchel Paige. And I think it's a tremendous story because my dad was a young guy playing for the Birmingham Black Barons and Satchel Paige. 
and the Kansas City Monarchs had come to town to play and the the the, the baseball Rickwood Stadium in, in Birmingham was packed and there were, you know, all people were in their Sunday best, the women were in their nice dresses and men had on their suits and their hats. And they all came out to watch Satchel Plage pitch against the Birmingham Black Barons. And my dad was first up. Great story, Kanoa. He gets up, fouls off a couple pitches, and then he slaps one over third base and ends up with a double on his first appearance against Satchel Page. Satchel Page comes off of the mound, walks back to my dad, and said, Young Buck, I've heard you a pretty good hitter. That's a pretty good bit of hitting right there. He says, uh, but I'm going to tell you something. You might as well sit right there because you're not going any further. <laughs> he walks back to the pitching mound. He threw nine pitches, struck out the next three guys, turned to my dad at second base, tipped his hat, and walked off the mound. True That's story. Amazing. My dad told me that when I was a little boy, and I thought, how cool is that? He's, my dad was kind of in awe of Satchel, but he also was a competitor, so he wanted to bat against him. After that game, two years later, my dad joined Satchel and was with the Satchel Page traveling all-stars going around playing baseball against, at that time, major leaguers. And um, it was Bob Feller's team against Satchel Page's team. And uh, the Negro League players, the black players, had great success against the, the major leaguers. And the commissioner of baseball eventually called the tour off because the, the Negro League players were winning the majority of the games. That's amazing. When did you first become aware in your childhood of your father's career and, and the significance of it? Well, when I first really became aware of my dad playing baseball, I was in Portland, Oregon. He played with the Portland Beavers. And he would take me down to the ballpark and I would during batting practice, I'd get down the outfield, be fielding fly balls and chasing things down. And I was just happy to be running around and be on the, on the field and then go up in the clubhouse and they'd be sitting up there smoking a cigar or drinking a beer or something. And I used to think, this is cool. You know, I was young. I was like a little boy. Um, had no idea how good my dad was. And I actually didn't even understand how good my father was until I got into high school when I started meeting people. And they would go, you're Artie Wilson's son? Man, let me tell you about your father. And then the stories would just go on and on and on. I came to Hawaii as a freshman. I was 17 years old. And that year, the San Francisco Giants came over to play against, I think it was the Tokyo Giants at Honolulu Stadium. Willie Mays was still playing. And, and I got to go down and meet Willie because Willie, Willie, actually, my dad took Willie under his wings when he was only 15 years old. My dad was 25. And Willie, Willie's father asked my dad to take care of Willie, to really take care of him. So Willie became my godfather. But I went down to meet Willie, and Willie introduced me to the manager of the Giants at the time. And the guy says, you're Artie Wilson's son. I said, yeah. He goes, let me tell you about your dad. Your dad was so fast that when we had your dad with the Giants in, in spring training, we wouldn't let him run against all the other players because he would depress them. He made them feel bad. He was so fast. He would just outrun them and turn around and kind of smile at them. He wouldn't say anything. He'd just smile and tell them, come on, come on. So he said, we stopped your dad from running sprints against the other guys. I tell you, my dad, when I, I'm, I'm now trying to put together the Kanoa um, some history about my dad to preserve it so that my children and my grandkids and everybody can share and have this. 
And one of the great stories that I've, I've heard about my dad is in Kansas City, between double hitters, between games, they brought a famed horse, a racehorse in, and my dad raced the racehorse from left field through center field all the way to right field. And the horse beat him two out of three times. But there was one race that my dad outran the horse. He got the horse one time? Oh, my goodness. Horse. He got the horse one time. Yeah. And I have, I have some great news articles. I, I was fortunate enough to have a guy write a, a, a story about my dad, a, a book about my dad. He did some tremendous research and provided me with a lot of the things that he found in newspaper articles and those types of things. And one of the greatest articles that I have, and I have it here at my office, is uh, former great Joe Lewis. When he had retired from boxing, he was traveling around and, and they asked Joe, what did he want to do? He said, the only thing he wants to do is go to California and watch Artie Wilson play baseball. So he took a trip to California and with, with another guy and they interviewed Joe after he went there. He went to the game, saw my dad play baseball, went down on the field to take a picture with my father. I would love to have the picture. I don't have it. But Joe Lewis, and I have the newspaper article, he, they asked him, well, coach, did, I mean, uh, champ, did you get to see Artie Wilson play? He goes, yeah, I did. And then a guy uh, offered in and said, well, I don't know what was the big deal about him. I mean, the guy only went four for five, you know. <laughs> and, and this is all in newspaper articles from in the 1940s and 50s. It's well, pretty I, cool it, to see. Yeah, again, I don't think unless, you know, people are, are a little bit more in tune to his story that, that they would even understand the magnitude of just how good he was. A four-time All-Star at the shortstop position in the oh, Negro yeah. Leagues. And I, I want to say that uh, what I read uh, somewhere was uh, one of the years he had, he had a streak, basically, of being an All-Star. But one of the years he missed out, uh, he was uh, outvoted at the shortstop position by a guy named... Uh, Jackie, Robinson, Jackie Robinson prior yeah. to when Jackie yeah. broke the color barrier in Major League Baseball. So, I mean, that just goes yeah. to show the kind of elite company he was with during this remarkable era. Yeah, and that was, that was really clear. And, and, you know, I talked to my dad about Jackie, and he had greatest respect in the world for Jackie Robinson and what he could accomplish. But if you talk to most people that knew baseball during that time, they would say that as a shortstop, Jackie was second to my dad. He, 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 he couldn't even come close to holding a, a, a candle to my dad as a player, as a shortstop. But to integrate baseball, Jackie was clearly the right guy to integrate baseball because he had gone to college. He had served in the, the military. He, had, and he, was, he was educated. My dad, you know, he barely got out of the high school if, if he got out of high school. And, and he just wanted to play the game of baseball. If you watch the movie 42, there's a scene in the movie where Branch Rickey is, is looking at different players on his desk about bringing players in. And one of, one of those players was my father. And he passed over him and took Jackie Robinson. In the 1948 All-Stars, the Major League Baseball sent numerous scouts to the All-Star game that was in Comiskey Park to scout eight players that were playing in the All-Star game, the Negro League All-Star game, and my dad was one of the eight players at that time. Did he ever talk about that or that decision? Was there ever, was that something that he desired to be at the time, to, to be that guy? Well, he wanted to be, he, no, he didn't want to necessarily break the color barrier. That wasn't his objective. He just loved playing baseball. 
And and you've got to understand my dad, I mean, he he loved baseball like a child. Even even at his later years, he just loved the game of baseball. My dad played really, really well at the Negro Leagues with Birmingham Black Barons. He had an opportunity to go and coach and play in Mayaguez, Puerto Rico. And he he had a tremendous career in Mayaguez, Puerto Rico. At the time after Jackie was signed, the Cleveland Indians and the New York Yankees both wanted to sign my dad. And I actually have the, the letters from the different organizations here with me because I'm like I said, I'm trying to put together his history. And the both the Indians and the Yankees wanted to sign my dad, and they were flying around Puerto Rico, Mayaguez, Puerto Rico, and the Indians. Bill Vick, I think it was, the Indians owner got a crop plane with a megaphone and was flying around low-lying areas saying, I need Artie Wilson to go to the such-and-such hotel. I want to sign him. He flew around all day, eventually got to the hotel. My dad heard about it, met the guy. He signed with the, the Indians. The Yankees then go to the commissioner of baseball and said it was unfair how the Indians had signed him. The commissioner of baseball voided my dad's contract with the, with the Indians and awarded his rights to the Yankees. At the time, the Yankees pretty much controlled baseball. Well, my dad didn't want to go and play for the Yankees. So he became a subject of ownership. Who owned them? The Cleveland Indians, the New York Yankees, the Indians, the Yankees. Eventually, the Yankees prevailed. He didn't report and ended up going to Oakland to play in the uh, in the Pacific Coast League. Yeah, it, it's incredible. And then then he gets a he gets a year right with the New York Giants at at one point he, later he, on in his career. Yeah, later on in his career, he got picked up with the Giants and he went to went to spring training with the Giants. Um, and he was had an unbelievable spring training where he batted I think four twenty two. Uh, playing shortstop and second base, but at the time they had a an infield made up of Alvin Dark and, and another guy, and they weren't going to sit either of those guys down for my dad to play. Leo DeRosha was the, was the manager at that time, and my dad went to Leo and said, look, I don't want to be a platoon guy. I like to play. I like to hit. I want to play. So if you're not going to use me, send me send me." down send me to to a, another team and bring up the kid and when he said bring up the kid he was really referring to Willie Mays and that's how Willie Mays got his start with the Giants my dad left the Giants Willie was brought to the Giants what have you discovered or what is at least has this process been like for you this experience of, of going back and, and and doing a little bit more research in that regard well it's been uh humbling to know that these guys not just my dad but the 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 the, the cool papa bells uh, the satchel page the buckle nils uh, the jackie robinson all these guys all they had to endure and go through to play the game of baseball they played the game for the absolute love of the game and these guys didn't i mean it wasn't like they made a ton of money I mean, they made $1,000 for the season. That was big money. They were, they were superstars at the time. Um, but they played it because they loved the game. And they played it the right way. And they, you know, they would play a double hitter, take a bus, eat peanut butter and jelly sandwiches and crackers, take a bus to another city, 
get off the bus and play another double hitter. My dad told me about where they played two double hitters in two different cities in the same day. Okay, where they play a morning, afternoon, then they go play a, a early evening and evening game where the, and they're taking a bus. And they're not flying, they're not driving a the car, they're taking a bus across town. Now you have to understand also, they had to have like the Birmingham Black Barons on the side of the bus because at that time, traveling for men of color was not always safe. So you always had to be aware and they had to have banners and, and things on their bus to say that they're a baseball team. So please, you know, highway patrol or whatever patrol or sheriffs don't mess with them. It, it seems very fitting, if you will, to talk about what that era meant to modern baseball, but also modern America at a time when America is reflecting in a way that perhaps it hasn't previously. Well, it, you know what it's doing, Kanoa? It's, it's, allowing people to understand that there's a, a there's a, a history that a lot of people don't know about and they need to know about it the uh, people that play the game of baseball and i think about hawaii hawaii is such so has such a rich rich uh history and tradition of baseball you go out and there's baseball teams and and the people they play and the families it's a it's an all-day event well all the little kids that play baseball need to know about the Negro League history because these guys were superstars. I'm talking fast, quick, unbelievable, athletic, could do a lot of things. Major League Baseball record book would be totally different if these guys who played in the Negro League were allowed to play in organized baseball when organized baseball first began. I mean, the record books would be completely different. I mean, Babe Ruth is the greatest home run hitter of all time, but Cool Papa Bell probably would knock Babe Ruth out of the park because he was a big, strong, burly guy who could hit the ball. You know, my dad said he hits the ball harder and faster and longer than anybody he's ever seen in his life. To me, it's so critical that young people, high school, high school age, elementary school, we need to we need to update history books and, and, and sports books and things so that we can be inclusive of guys who played in the Negro Leagues because after you think about it, 100 years ago, they were pretty good athletes and they proved themselves over time when they got an opportunity to be in the big leagues. Um, most of them had success. The only time they didn't have success is if the social pressure of being the only black player on a team would have been too great. My dad experienced that. I mean, when I look at the 1953 roster of the Portland Beavers or the 1954 roster, I mean, my dad's the only black player on those rosters, you know, and and it was tough. He, he had a career in Oakland, California, playing with the Oakland Oaks, where, where uh, Billy Martin stood up and said, I'm his roommate, because there was an issue about who would be a roommate for my dad. And Billy Martin stood up uh, and said, and he was a fighter at that time. He said, I'm his roommate. And years later, when Billy Martin got a couple of managerial jobs, he had called my dad and asked him to come be the hitting coach. And my dad was already tucked into a career in, in cars in Portland and passed on it. That just uh, adds, adds value to how important sports is and how important it's been in the history of America, where at least in the sporting world, when things opened up, players were able to, for the most part, play for a unified reason and a cause and to become a team. And I don't think guys 
it, it didn't happen always, but I don't think guys cared whether you were black, white, or brown. They just wanted to win and play the game the right way, and they played very, very well. So sports, even back in the 40s, 50s, was really uh, an instrument for, for unification of, of people. Kind of on that note, Artie, uh, you know, how do you view – but with knowing all of that and being such a student and a historian and, and a, a you know a, a gatekeeper of a, a lot of this knowledge uh, from the Negro leagues, how do you see this current era and and the athletes speaking out and and really being at the forefront and and pushing the issue really for for, for advancement for social change and there's just the last couple of months and how much we've seen very prominent athletes being right at the front of of, of a lot of this. I I couldn't be more proud of some of the athletes and some of the young athletes of color and, and standing up, being, being strong enough to voice their opinions, to being able to, to share their thoughts and to forcing change. And if it wasn't for a lot of these young athletes and, and people that are, have been willing to stand up, I mean, when you stood up in the past, you were kind of ostracized by half of America. Look at what happened with Muhammad Ali. Look what happened with Jim Brown. Look what happened with Kurt Floyd of Flood. Look what happened to, to, to Kareem Abdul-Jabbar in a lot of instances. But now we've got some prominent, prominent people, athletes of color that are standing up. And what I'm seeing now that didn't happen in the 60s when, when I was first involved in in social unrest and, and, and protests to try and get equality. What I'm seeing now that didn't happen then is there's a unification of people, young people, millennials, different people that are all together standing up. If you see some of the protests and the marches, you see a great group of people and it's people of all persuasions. There's Asians, there's Latinos, there's Blacks, there's Whites. There's, I mean, it's, it's a little bit of everything that is standing up and saying, we want justice, we want equality, we want true equality, not a token attempt at equality, not, not uh, for a couple people, but we want everyone to have an equal right to, to live this dream of having success and, and, and being treated fairly. That is huge, and that's very, very important. Yeah, I think they've, they've definitely helped. I think lead some people um, off the, the the comfort level, if you will. What what also about uh, you cover collegiate sports, but the rising voice we've seen from from collegiate athletes. It's not just been professional athletes, but uh, you know a lot of the collegiate athletes who seem to find a larger voice here and uh, stepping out, a la a Lou Alcindor back in the day. Um, you know when he was at UCLA. You know, you know the the fact that some of these young guys have the have the the strength of conviction to stand up right now, it, it makes me very, very proud of them because there's a lot of guys that maybe wanted to say something, but were afraid to say something for fear that their positions as a player would be put aside, that they would be cut from the team, that they would be not popular in public opinions. These guys right now don't care. For them to force the, the, the changing of the flag in Mississippi, for them to, to, to force some of the statues being torn down and, and displaced, uh, I, I applaud that. I think that is tremendous. I think that is very worthwhile. Uh, I am not one that is for the looting and the, and the destroying of property and all of that because I don't think that's necessary. 
the, the point is being made. You don't have to burn down a building in order for the, the owner of that building to understand that there has got to be change. I think there's a place for, for, for protests and there's a, a place for meaningful protests. And, and we've got to start it now, keep it going. And it can't just end maybe in the next 30 days. It's got to be ongoing, the continuation of changes in America in order for America to be great. Yeah, I think that's very well put. I mean, we can symbolically do a bunch of stuff, right, on social media and everyone can kind of say the right things, but it's it's now a matter of putting your money where your mouth is here and actually Absolutely. following through uh, with seeing some of this systemic change uh, take place. I wanted to sort of turn the knob back a little bit uh, to your dad. He passed away in 2010 at the age of 90. The recognition for his playing career, was 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 he ever during his life granted that to, to you know have that 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 celebration of, of what he meant to the game of baseball no i i don't think so and and i say that because tommy lasorda who who thought my dad tommy lasorda has called my dad the greatest baseball player that no one knew that was that's a quote from tommy lasorda Artie wilson the greatest baseball player that no one knew partially because his career was disrupted by the Cleveland Indians, New York Yankees spite over him. And, and, and the commissioner of baseball at the time could care less about my dad. He was more uh, concerned with keeping peace between the Yankees and the Indians. So my dad was just kind of byproduct. He was waste that was discarded. Um, and then when my dad, my dad's career has been overlooked because not many people would have the career statistics that my dad had and not being in the Hall of Fame in Cooperstown. Now there has been a push, there's been a number of people who have brought them up, and I'm hopeful that going forward, we'll start pushing a little bit more and he might be able to get that recognition in, in Cooperstown. He's in the Negro League Hall of Fame, he's in the Hall of Fame in Birmingham, Alabama, he's in the Hall of Fame in the state of Oregon, but I, I'd love to see my dad acknowledged for his playing of baseball for all the years that he played and as well as he played the game in Cooperstown. There's no denying that the Negro Leagues were a top-level league. And so, oh, yeah. you know, he was the last one to hit over 400 in a top-level league. Ted Williams did it in 1941. Your dad did it in 1948. So uh, I think that that achievement of itself uh, is deserving of at least consideration. And then you throw in everything else that he did statistically oh, yeah. in his career. That, that's a really strong argument. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I t Willie Mays is... is uh, my godfather, and we got to spend time with Willie um, when we went to for his 75th birthday. Willie would tell you that my dad was the best leadoff hitter in the world because he could wear out a pitcher. His first at bat, he'd have the pitcher throwing 25 or 30 balls because he would just foul off everything to get the pitcher tired and then slap the single. And then everybody come up afterwards would be in good shape because the picture would already be winded. The popularity, yeah. just just reading some of the the old articles and, and some of the histories, um, the popularity of your dad. I mean, even I think it was the Oakland Oaks owner uh, who who brought him in and said, "Hey, we need him to come and play, even if it was later in his career, because uh, we needed people to come to the ballpark, and, and people were going to come if Artie Wilson was in the lineup." Uh, and it's just amazing, you know. And, and obviously, I think for for folks aren't familiar right the, the old PCL before Major League Baseball made it west of the Mississippi was huge right San Francisco Seals oh, the Oakland Oaks uh, and and he was one of the main draws and and I think just that being lost to history right is is 
is a darn shame, but but speaks to to how popular uh, your dad was seemingly every stop he had along his career. Yeah, well, my dad had a great career in Oakland. They loved him in Oakland, and there was there was one fan in Oakland that really rode my dad hard. You know, they he was he was racist basically. He rode my dad hard by the by the second season. That fan had come around and had become my dad's greatest supporter. And he was a big money guy, big money guy for the Oakland Oaks. That fan um, gave my dad a baby shower in Oakland. And they brought all of these gifts out, a, a carriage, a stroller, everything. And that fan was the one who organized the whole thing at home plate. They had my dad come out, my mom come out, had a baby shower for, that, for my dad. How did Artie Wilson uh, the second end up in basketball? You know, my dad was always uh, my supporter in both sports. I played an awful lot of baseball as a young guy. I loved the game of baseball. I think baseball came pretty easy to me. And by the time I got to being a junior in high school, we won the state championship in high school as my as my junior year. And I was playing both baseball and basketball. But I realized. And it was all based on ego. And it's, it, I wish sometimes I had it gone the other way, but, you know, I have no complaints. Um, we played in front of 12, 13,000 people in basketball for the state championship in Oregon. My baseball career in Portland at Grand High School was fabulous, but there were like 20 people in the stands, your girlfriend, your mother, your father, and maybe a friend. Nobody came to watch baseball. It was rainy and cold. I had more baseball scholarships to go and play in college then I had basketball scholarships and then I had an offer out from out of Kansas City for baseball coming out of high school and I chose and I talked to my dad he he said baseball is the sport you should play but I know you're loving basketball so go for it so he gave me his blessings to go and pursue basketball uh he probably should hit me in the head and said stay with baseball but that's another story <laughs> I think it's worked out all right though for you we can't let you go without asking you, uh, because obviously you have, your career took you to Hawaii and you have been around the University of Hawaii program for so many years. Um, we are at a very strange time here where so much is up in the air and uncertain. Uh, in your personal opinion, just based on what you're observing, you don't have to uh, display any kind of, you know, medical scientific background or anything like that, but just what your gut is telling you. What will college sports potentially look like here in the next few months or so going forward? Well, Kano, I'm, I'm afraid. I'm afraid that we might not, we might not see football kick off this year. I, I, uh, I'm hopeful that we can because I think the University of Hawaii would, would almost, I mean, I, I can't even think about what would happen if football, the football season doesn't kick off. But if these spikes, aren't leveled out at some point in time. Hawaii might be in a great position as far as how we're handling the COVID situation, but we may not have anybody to play. <laughs> there may not be a team that can fly in and then get out of here. There may not be a team for us to fly and play against. So we might not have competition. The next, I think, 14 to 30 days is critical. I would hate to be David Lassner and, 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 uh, the athletic director, David Matlin. Matlin, yeah. Yeah, I would hate to be 
I mean, I would hate to be both those guys because this is a very difficult decision whether you allow football to really kick off. And then if you if it kicks off and there's all of a sudden five or seven players that are, are examined and found to have COVID, well, what do you do then? Who would have ever thought that we yeah. would be sitting here having a conversation like we're having where so many different things have been impacted from the Olympics and these athletes have trained for four years to get ready and all of a sudden it's not happening and they got to keep the training going for another year in order to get ready again. And I mean, that's got to be difficult on guys emotionally, yeah. psychologically. I mean, you put your life on hold to train and now give me one more year. Well, and, and when you're talking about college athletes specifically, right? And you're still talking about young men and women. And so they might not yet be equipped to handle some of the emotional distress. Uh, that's, that's of the utmost importance right now. And, and, and hopefully, just hopefully, uh, we can get to the point where we can practice safely and compete safely. Uh, but yeah, you feel for them. You feel for them more than anything. Absolutely. And no, here's, the, here's the other thing. You talk about the the, the, the effect of the, the pandemic and, and, and the, the fear that athletes will have. And then you, you couple that with the social unrest and everything that's going on where there are athletes leaving home to come to Hawaii. And, and if they're of color, if they're black players coming from different parts of America, they're coming to Hawaii. If they've never been to Hawaii, they're not even sure what to expect when they get here. Okay, I mean, how are they going to be received in Hawaii? What are they going to be? I mean, are they going to lose their? Are they going to lose themselves? Are they going to be a part of this? This culture and this environment. There are so many dynamics that you have to think about, and I'm hopeful that the University of Hawaii is being sensitive to that because even though you come to Hawaii and you want to be a part of this community, you don't want to lose who you are. Okay, and, and, and I don't think any of those players coming over at 18 or 19, when they know that there's so many things happening on the continental U.S. And, and in the inner cities and various areas, their eyes, their ears, social media is going to keep them well informed, and they're going to be in Hawaii. And sometimes those guys will feel like they're, they're like a, a, a fish out of water. They're not mm -hmm. sure what they should do. So that's, to me, really important for the University of Hawaii to be aware and to have some sensitivity type training and understanding and workshops and bring people in that can help guys assimilate into this community and do it in a really positive way. Well, that's when you hope that what our community has represented for the most part, traditionally, a culture that cares about one another, it's a little bit more ingrained in us. And so you hope that that is also something that translates well for these, these individuals who are coming and, and maybe living here for the first time is, is that they get that sense of community and acceptance and ohana. You know, you see it even going around. You don't see as many people complaining about wearing masks around here because I think that there is an understanding like, hey, look, I'm not wearing the mask for me. I'm wearing the mask yeah. for my neighbor and for the other yeah. people that, that I share this community with. And uh, I, I, I like to think that there is a greater and, and more uh, ingrained understanding of that kind of community ideal uh, here in Hawaii than perhaps in some other places. So hopefully that comes across as well. Yeah, I agree with you, Kanoa. And you know, it's funny, I had a couple of uh, friends who are friends of players that are considering the University of Hawaii and they're, they're black players. And the family asked my friend to call me and ask me how it is to be black 
in Hawaii because they're all kind of freaked out and, and concerned. And, and the way I always say about living in Hawaii, and I've lived here most of my life now, the beauty of Hawaii is that there is racism, but it's not exclusive to any one particular group. Everybody catches a little bit and everybody is a little bit racist, but it's not in the negative way where you're really treated like, like bad, really bad. I mean, everybody here catches some and there's so many mixtures in Hawaii that how are you going to be discriminatory against a Chinese, Filipino, Hawaiian, Howley, when your kid is made up of Chinese, Filipino, <laughs> Hawaiian, Howley, or black and Samoan or black and Chinese. I mean, we have so many people here that are mixed and, and I think that's what beauty of Hawaii, nobody catches all of it. Everybody gets a little bit of it and we all get along. Yeah. You, the, the pride you have in, in your lineage and in, in, your, in your father's career and his accomplishments and achievements, it, it is uh, very obvious and very overt and very felt. And we thank you for sharing that with us. Uh, he was great. You're still my favorite Artie Wilson because, you know, I love you. I've known you my whole life, but uh, he was a pretty incredible Artie Wilson as well. I've been around the Leahy's all my life for the most part, from your granddad to your dad to you. I'm a proud man to say I'm your friend and I love you and appreciate you and Jordan, both of you guys. Uh, let's be difference makers for all of us, okay, in this world. Let's all of us be difference makers. We can do what we can do. Uh, and if we change one person's opinion about racial, racial equality, we've done a job. Yeah, I think that's really well put. Artie, we appreciate it, man. Always a pleasure. I hope to see you again real soon. All right, that was a lot of fun. Thanks once again to Artie. Go ahead and take a break when we come back. Our post-game best and worst. For our listeners on the Valley Isle, the Maui Flag Football League is on this summer starting as early as July 1st. The MFFL is a youth flag football league for boys and girls ranging in age from 3 to 18, broken up into divisions of seven different age groups representing five districts, upcountry, Wailuku, Kahului, Kihei, and Lahaina. The goal of the MFFL is to teach the game of football without the worry of violent contact, concussions, or weight cutting. It's all about having fun, being active, and making new friends while reinforcing important values like teamwork, perseverance, and respect for your fellow players and coaches. For more information on the Maui Flag Football League, please call 808-280-7513 or email mauiflagfootball at gmail.com and get signed up. All right, back to the show. All right, Jordan, post-game time, best and worst. What is your best here for this episode of the pod? Yeah, my best. Uh, this is a little quirky one, uh, but I don't know if you saw this in Korea. Uh, I saw it in a Korea Times report uh, that apparently Czech cereal, so Kellogg, the parent company, had put out a poll like years ago in Korea polling for a new flavor. And we're, we're, we've seen this, right? I mean, you talk about Kit Kats and all the different flavors that come out of Japan, green tea and all this kind of stuff. Uh, there's like, you know, ketchup chips in Canada. I when you're talking about Lay's, apparently the winner of the poll uh, was green onion flavored Czech cereal. Uh, and I'm not endorsing Czech cereal as like, you know, hey, go, go get your green onion Czech cereal and eat it out of a bowl. But I, I feel like it might make a nice garnish. You know, if you're uh, if you got a nice uh, fresh pot of fried rice or, uh, you know, you need uh, to, to spice up your Simon or something like that uh, and you don't have any green onion and you need a little crunch. You might uh, throw in a little smashed up green onion flavored Czech cereal uh, for that. But I can't imagine eating it with milk. That might uh, qualify as a worse. But uh, yeah, I'm all for innovative, weird, quirky flavors. So this is, uh, this is mine for the week. This sounds like a perfect topping for like a baked potato or something there like that. My best, 
Uh, Amy Ozzy, and this actually could count as a worse depending on what perspective you're looking at it. Uh, Amy Ozzy is transferring to Cal Poly. She is a beach volleyball standout for the University of Hawaii. Now, uh, I think under any other circumstance, I would probably put this on the worst side just because, uh, you know, looking through the lens of University of Hawaii sports. Uh, but she's transferring to Cal Poly for the final year of her beach volleyball eligibility. Uh, and I think what makes this cool is she is a grad transfer. And she has been accepted into Cal Poly's Masters of Science program in quantitative economics. Yes, my former field of study as well. She has a year of eligibility remaining after last season uh, at UH because obviously it got canceled due to the pandemic. Uh, and so I just think, you know, she has been a really great player on the sand uh, for the University of Hawaii and certainly going back to her Seabury Hall career and her time uh, here on Maui. Uh, but she's also obviously really smart and really intellectual and uh, she's going to be able to apply both uh, at a very respected institution. So uh, it's not a worst because she's leaving UH. It's a best because she's going on uh, to do some really, really cool stuff. Yeah, after we're done recording, you can uh, explain to me what quantitative <laughs> economics is. It's been a few years, so it might be a little rusty here on my mind. What's your worst? Uh, my worst, I don't know if you saw this, uh, but Quibi, uh, which as, as a streaming service uh, has raised some question marks, uh, but they're like, you know, they're Netflix or some sort of streaming service, but everything's like 10 minutes or less. Uh, but they are doing a remake, I put that in air quotes, of The Princess Bride. Uh, and I don't know, how, I don't know if you're on board as a Princess Bride fan or not, because I feel like there's kind of a, a very clear line of people who really like it and people who just think it's nonsense. Uh, and those people are wrong. Um, but they, so they're redoing it. Everybody's shooting it at home and it's star studded, right? So they've got all kinds of celebrities. I mean, Jack Black is is playing the giant, I think, at one point, uh, Andre the Giant's character. They, they've got all Sophie Turner and whichever Jonas brother she's married to. They, they, they're doing the, the scene with Dread Pirate Roberts. Uh, so they, they, they've got all kinds of common, Jennifer Garner. And again, you, you name a celebrity, they're probably in this. Uh, which, because if one thing we've learned during the, the pandemic and all the social unrest is we just need a bunch of celebrities to tell us it's going to be okay. Uh, that's never gone wrong. Yeah, right. Um, <laughs> and so I'm just like, what are we doing here? I will say I, I need to include that they're doing it to help raise funds for World Central Kitchen, uh, which is doing great things. So like, that's cool. But just, just maybe just donate some money. I don't know. Where they're remaking Princess Bride shot on like iPhones at home. I just think it's... I think it's hogwash. It's the same feeling I get when I watch like television singing contests, like The Voice or whatnot, and they start singing like a Whitney Houston song. And it's like, why? You'll never do it as well. Like, you'll just never do it as well. Uh, so why do you even try? And I think that goes for Princess Bride. I love that movie, man. Inconceivable. Stop those rhymes. Now I mean it. Anybody want a peanut? Have fun storming the castle. I love that movie. Absolutely. It's one of my faves. Uh, and so you're never going to do it as well as what they did the first time, especially if you don't do it with any level of production value that's even in the same vicinity. So, uh, okay, it's for a good cause. But, um, yeah, that, that's, a, that's a tough one, tough endeavor there. My worst is, and I, I know that you're going to share this sentiment with me, uh, Honolulu Star Advertiser announcing cutbacks. And according to people close to the situation, the paper gave roughly half of its staff uh, the choice to accept rolling furloughs over the remainder of the fiscal year, which goes till next February, or accept a severance package and voluntarily basically allow yourself to be laid off. Uh, so wanted to give shout outs to a couple of staff members who took the voluntary layoff. Obviously, everybody who is in that situation, we want to give our, uh, our, our aloha to. Uh, two people who I'm particularly affectionate for, 
uh, writer Cindy Lewis, a longtime beat writer for University of Hawaii Volleyball, uh, and Brian McInnes, who is our buddy, BMAC, going back to our time on the radio show, uh, a guy who has his own podcast now, Court Sense, with Brian McInnes. You definitely want to check that out. Uh, but they decided to take the voluntary layoff. Uh, I have to lament the fact that these are two really, really good reporters and writers, and it is just sad to see them go. And with all due respect to everybody at the Honolulu Star Advertiser, it's a little bit downgraded because of the loss of uh, particularly those two uh, in my mind, because uh, they're just they're just two of my faves. Yeah, they, they lost a lot of really, really good writers. Uh, and I, I echo those sentiments and some love over to, to Brian and, and Cindy Lewis, uh, you know, as, as you pointed out, as well as everybody else who uh, is no longer with uh, the star advertiser. And it just kind of, it makes me lament too, right? And just how much of a struggling industry um, the newspaper business is and how valuable the newspaper business is uh, to a functioning and healthy society. Uh, and just uh, kind of makes me grind my teeth a little bit. And I lament and I, and I hope people support and I'm not, this isn't some endorsement necessarily of the star advertiser. I think they let a bunch of our, our, uh, our buddies go, but uh, you know, just, just, just print journalism, uh, in general, uh, and just, uh, you know, it, it kind of grinds my gears on the, the amount of people out there that kind of rely on like popular Instagram pages or like Facebook posts for their news. Uh, and that's how like so much of society consumes information and news these days. Uh, it just kind of boggles my mind and is kind of a reflection of, I think, where we're at. <laughs> uh, so this is my plea to a lot of people out there to, uh, you know, I, I'd imagine a lot of people that listen to the podcast also read print journalism and things like that. But I just love to see more people, uh, you know, consume. And this is some, uh, you know, long endorsement for like big J journalism or something like that. But I do think there is a lot of value to it. I agree. It's, it's the ultimate conundrum, right? At a time where we are perhaps most in need of credible reporting, right? When there is so much more minutia out there to blind us or to distract us from legitimate news reporting. It is also, unfortunately, a time where it is perhaps least valued. Shouts to them, and uh, we wish all those who remain the best, all those who are leaving the best, uh, but Cindy and Brian, uh, we love you guys. All right, that's it for us. Thanks once again for listening. Hit us up on Twitter at Kanoa Leahy, at Jordan Helley, or at TalkSports808 for any suggestions uh, and or topic ideas. Uh, big thanks once again to Artie Wilson for joining us. Jordan, talk to you again soon, my man. Sounds good, man. Enjoyed it.